Okay, um, good morning. Oh, that's the other thing I need to warn you. This group, they dribble in. They dribble in and dribble in and dribble in. So if you want to shame any of them as they come in, you are free to do that. We're a basket? I don't get it. Dribbling. Oh, all right. Okay. I also have to say I love your initials, TC, because it reminds me of a place I used to call home, Traverse City, which we always used to call TC. So TC, Michigan, that's right. Um, why don't we pray for Dr. Ham as he begins a four-week? Four-week? I should have said eight-week and see what he said. <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> let's pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks for this day. Uh, and even the weather, which in the chill of the air, we are brought to a new life, um, vigorously so. We thank you for the Sabbath day and the time to rest, the time to drill into your word, uh, to learn again of your great grace through the wonderful characters of the Old and the New Testaments. I ask your blessing upon uh, Dr. Ham as he leads us Allow your spirit to work in and through him, that we may all profit for the good of your kingdom and find ourselves nourished for the service you have before us. Bless us in grace. Uh, bless us in the name of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Can you hear me? All right. First of all, I just wanted to give you a little uh, background about myself. Um, some of you uh, were here when I taught. Uh, when was that, Dan? That was here this last spring. Last spring. Um, I moved to, uh, to to Malone, to Canton, Ohio, uh, last last summer. Uh, so this is just my second year at Malone, and. Uh, I wasn't always a Bible teacher. I was, in, in fact, uh, an IT guy. I think for an IT guy, I can't handle this little microphone. It's falling out. It's supposed to be really tight around the ears so it doesn't fall out. All right. So, uh, but I, I started seminary thinking, you know, I think God has called me to become a pastor or a teacher of some kind. And so I started seminary thinking I was going to become a pastor, really. So I was in the pastoral track. And uh, I went to Dallas Theological Seminary, and I was working full-time at the time, and uh, went to school full-time. It was a fairly busy part of my life. And uh, when I started, I had no intention of really getting into the Word, to be honest with you. I just wanted to get the skills down, become a pastor. Uh, but then, then I read this book. Oh, in Dallas, by the way, uh, one of the things I loved about my experience there was, uh, not, not as a student at the time, but I appreciate it now, uh, the basic requirements for a THM there was four semesters of Hebrew and five semesters of Greek as a starting point. <laughs> and then all the Bible classes after that are conducted in either in Hebrew, if you're, if you're, if you're taking an Old Testament class, or in uh, Greek if you're taking a New Testament course. So it was pretty intense. So at the time, I really didn't appreciate it. It was just way too much work. Uh, but then I read this book called Jonah in Hebrew, and I felt both joy and sadness at the same time. And here's why. 
the joy I felt was discovering the power of God's word to speak to me, even in my academic study of this book. And the sadness was, translation simply cannot do justice to this book. It just can't. And I felt for the first time that I'd been missing out on reading the Bible. I love the Bible. I kept reading it in English thinking that I was getting stuff. And then you are, and I was, about half. The other half you, you just can't get. Unless you constantly read commentaries and, and journal articles, and you just can't. There's so much in here that we, uh, I'm teaching Hebrew right now. Third semester Hebrew course at Malone University is, is a, a reading of Jonah and Ruth. And we've been reading Jonah since uh, end of August. And we're now just finishing chapter three. So it's an intense study, and the students are constantly asking, could we slow down? <laughs> it's four chapters. It's been a month and a half. We haven't gotten very far because there's so much in here uh, that when they begin to read it in Hebrew, they feel, feel the same thing that I felt. And here's the other part. Uh, when I read Jonah for the first time, I finally saw the power of the message of the book. Not just the beauty and, and, and the complexities uh, that you find in this book, but just the absolute power of God's message. And that, if you want to get that, that power of God's message, you have to come for class four. <laughs> because it's in chapter four that everything gets tied together. In chapter one, you kind of scratch your head. Who is this Jonah? What's he doing? Chapter two, we're confused. Wait a minute, is he repenting? Is Jonah repenting? Is Jonah finally calling out to God? There's tension in the poetry in chapter two. Chapter three, we get the Ninevites repenting. Remember that story? And then, but in, it's in chapter four that God and Jonah finally have a conversation. They have a heart to heart. And we finally get to see what's in God's heart. And we get to see what's in Jonah's heart. And there, all of the literary beauty that the, that the storyteller has been building up, uh, it crescendos into this beautiful story and message in chapter four. So um, I was told that, all of you read Hebrew, right? No. <laughs> I lied. <laughs> so, so what I'd like to do is this. Uh, today we're gonna do chapter one, chapter two next, next week, chapter three, chapter four. We've got a four week series. So uh, it works out nicely that Jonah's in four chapters. Uh, could we first just read the text, please? So if you have your Bibles, uh, we're in Jonah chapter one. Actually, you'll get to hear my voice for the rest of the hour. Could we have a volunteer to read God's word for us? Yes. Could, uh, Dan, would you get her a microphone? If you find the major prophets, I, I, like, 
Isaiah is a big book. It's easier to find Jeremiah, Ezekiel. And then you get the minor prophets after that. So after Daniel, if you can find Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, that's where you find it. Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. <laughs> Just to impress you. <laughs> yes, please. Okay. Jonah chapter 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us, and we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us who is responsible for making all this trouble for us. What did you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. This terrified them, and they asked, What have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, What should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried to the Lord, O oh Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, O oh Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this the, great, or the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. But the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. Thank you. Most of you are very familiar with this story, Jonah and the whale, uh, or Jonah and the big fish. Uh, in fact, my son, when he was a little, when he was a little boy, he's, he's now 12, when he was about five or six, um, he watched the VeggieTales version of Jonah. And I kept finding myself correcting the movie in front of him. No, 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 wait a minute. Uh, it ruined the movie entirely. Uh, Jonah Ben Amitai. Yonah Ben Amitai is his name. Um, now there's debate about the genre of the stories. Let's start there. Jonah was a real prophet. In fact, in 2 Kings 14, I think, verse 25, Jonah is mentioned. Jonah is the prophet, Ben Amitai, son of Amitai. Um, you know how we, some, some people have names like Johnson, Benson, Watson? That son, uh, it's a patriarchal lineage name, right? So Ben Amitai, for example, is like saying Amitaisen. So Ben Amitai is his, his last name, really, son of Amitai. And... Uh, 
he's named as a real prophet. So the, the, the challenge then is, is the book of Jonah a historical narrative about this prophet? Or is it something else? So, so some of the uh, challenges is when we identify a genre, we need to look for its characteristics. So for example, some people say it's history. People say, no, it's not, it's fiction. Some people say it's historical fiction. <laughs> they want to have it both ways. Some people say it's a parable. Some people say, well, it's in the prophetic corpus, isn't it? Well, this can go on, actually. There's, um, even in, in this genre of fiction, Satire. Now, there are two reasons, like, we'll just think of it as two big categories then. One, people want to read this as a story that happened and it's just telling that, that story. Uh, so <coughs> however you look at that, historical or historical novel, <coughs> or something made up, including perhaps a parable or a satire. Excuse me. <coughs> now, there are people who say, well, a parable could be historical. Could be. But a parable need not be historical. So, for example, when Jesus tells a parable, there was once a man going down to Jericho. Was there? Now, the, the literalist among us would say, of course there was. Jesus said there was. Wait a minute, you're missing the point. He also says that the mustard seed is the smallest of all seeds. Smallest of all seeds. Whoa. Anybody who, I mean, who, who has actually studied this knows that the mustard seed is not the smallest of all seeds. In fact, it's not, even the, it's not even close. If you start ranking seeds from the smallest to the greatest, it's like one millionth because of all the African orchid seeds, right? You've got to rank all those ahead. So if, even if it's a parable, it could be historical or not. But a parable says something about its purpose, doesn't it? What, what does Jesus, why does Jesus tell parables? Why does Jesus tell parables? Sorry? Meaning, some, some sort of meaning behind the story. I love telling stories as part of my teaching. Um, have you ever noticed when, when, a, when a sermon gets a little dry, and your head starts to go down and you're thinking about something else, you're pretending you're reading the Bible. <laughs> you're thinking about something else. And the pastor says, just last week, everybody looks up. Or, when I was a boy, oh, story. Stories capture our imagination to the point that when, I'm sure it doesn't happen uh, here, but when, when sermons get boring, stories perk us back up. In the middle of a very dry series of dark and gloomy texts of Hosea and Joel and Amos and Obadiah, Jonah gets into this middle of the minor prophets and it captures our imagination. Now, some people deny the historicity because of the miraculous events in Jonah. So for example, the belly of the fish story. That, that's hard, right? Uh, how, can, how can a man survive in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights? 
So if you're denying the historicity because of miraculous events, I'm not with you. Because I believe in God, and God is, by definition, supernatural. So if God intervenes, things that we can't make sense of happens, just like the resurrection happens. And Jesus says, I'm going to give you the sign of Jonah, the impossible. So if that's your, if that's your axe to grind, I, I don't, I don't want to deal with that. But if you're saying it's history because, well, there was Jonah, Jonah, Ben Amitai. Okay, we can talk now. Can we use historical persons, though, to tell a story? Oh, yeah, we can. We can, we can tell a parable using a historical person, right? In fact, historical fiction is that category, isn't it? But if you're saying it's not history, it's more like a parable or a satire because of the kind of stuff that you see in the book, for example, in, in historical, novel, historical books of the Old Testament, for, think of Kings, the book of Kings. No one debates that that's a genre, it's history. Every king is named, right? In fact, it's a book of Kings. <laughs> All the kings are named. Do you, do you know the king's name of Nineveh? Nineveh has a king in chapter 3. The king, unnamed. That seems strange. Why don't you name the king? In historical stories, usually those details are important. Uh, what about the name of the head sailor who comes and speaks to Jonah? We just read, uh, uh, Linda just read that for us. What's his name? Don't know. Where exactly is Tarshish? <laughs> if you want to spend some, if you want to spend an afternoon reading really, really dry, boring commentary, look that one up because nobody knows where Tarshish is. Some, there's some guesses, maybe it's Tarsus, but it's out there somewhere. Nobody knows where Tarshish is. So if you're talking about, well, the story reads kind of just like a short story. Then I'm with you. We're, now we're talking about genre in a way that we should talk about genre. What does it look like? How does it read? So I'm not denying the historicity of the events. It could, it could have very well have happened. But I don't think that's the point of the book. The point of the book isn't simply to say, let me give you some information about what happened. That's history, right? That's why when I was, when I was in high school, I hated history because history books were just, here's what happened, then this happened, then this happened. I only started liking history when I started reading people who said, this is why it happened, and this is the ramification of that event. But the, just a dry, here's what happened, here's what happened, here's what happened, which is history. Uh, it doesn't seem to be the point of, of the book, does it? So let's, let's for now, for, for the duration of our course next four weeks, including today. We won't talk, talk about this as a fiction. Or may, uh, it is kind of satirical. We'll talk about that. It is certainly teaching us something through that story. Now, is it historical? Possibly. Does it have to be? No, because parables don't have to be. Um, speaking of the kind of story that Jonah, Jonah is, if you start reading, and, and we're going to go, so if you have your Bibles, keep it out, because we're going to go back and forth. The story begins with God speaking to Jonah ben Amittai, saying, Kum, rise, lech, go. Rise, go 
to Nineveh, Nineveh, uh, uh, sorry, Nineveh, the great city, because their sin has come up before me, literally. Now, I think the version that Linda read, it says something like, uh, how did it say, by the way, how did it say the sin of Nineveh? Oh, come up before me. Which version is that? I like that. Come up before me. So in the ancient Near Eastern worldview, this is what the world kind of looked like, you know, just a big picture idea. Here's the earth. And you got rivers and stuff. Uh, here are pillars that hold up that earth. And then there's this firmament, Shemayim. There's the greater light and the lesser light and the stars all on this firmament. Then there's water above and water below. Because God separated the two waters. In Hebrew, water is, is dual. Uh, Hebrew has plural and singular and dual, too, like nostrils are dual. Afayim, ayim is a, a dual ending. And water is mayim, two waters. One above, one below. And then here is sheol. However you want to interpret that, sheol, somewhere down there. And then up here is God. And God is holding court like a king. And so we call it the heavenly council. So the angels and in and, and, and the story of Job, for example, Hasatan, the adversary, goes up and down. This is what it is. He's going up and down. And now he's in the presence of God. He, go, he can go back down here. So uh, that's the, this is kind of the very, very basic worldview that they had about the, the, the cosmology. By the way, if you, if you actually hold to this view, Genesis 1 makes a lot of sense. The firmament, the lights above, light below, water below, separating the waters. Um, so Nineveh is somewhere here. And their sin is so great, it has reached God. So literally, their sin, their wickedness, has come up before me, so I can't ignore it. There's a, um, do you remember the story of the Tower of Babel? I love that God has to come down to see what's going on. In this, in the story of Babel, they're building a great tower to reach this place, the heavens. And it's so small that God has to come down to see it. (laughs) Think about that. It's like, I, I don't see it. Let's go down there. But in this story, the sin has literally come up before God. And so God can't ignore it, and so God tells Jonah, hey, go to this great city. Here's a word that I want you to note throughout the course, throughout Jonah. Now, again, some translations will not tell you every time this word occurs. But this word is perhaps the most important word, and it's pronounced in Hebrew, gadol, Looks like that. Gadol. And we're going to learn some Hebrew. Gadol. Can we all say that? Gadol. Gadol means great. Great as in big and huge. Not great as in character, by the way. Great, 
like a great man. We don't, we don't normally use this word. But a big, great, large place like Nineveh is Ha'ir, the city, Hagadol, great city. So there's <clears throat> preach against this great city. Proclaim or preach or speak sometimes. This one is kara. Sorry, yeah, I'm sorry. It's uh, <laughs> yeah. I can't read it, right? <laughs> Q-A-R-A. Kara. Kum. Rise. Do you remember when Jesus says, rise, little girl? And the gospel writers uh, transliterate the sound of the air make? The gospel writers do that uh, just very selectively. When Jesus is on the cross and he says, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's transliterated. Uh, the, the gospel writers record the sound that Jesus spoke uh, instead of translating into the Greek, um, that which the gospel writers write in. Uh, there are a couple of times that Jesus speaks, and the gospel writers say, these are the very words of Jesus. It's actual sounds that he made. And one of them is Talitha, little girl, kum, get up. Aramaic and Hebrew are cognates. They're very similar. Uh, so, ilo, ilo, lama sabachthani in Aramaic. In Hebrew, is eli, eli, lama sabachthani. So, get up, go. Okay, two commands, get up, go. Verse two. This is where he, Hebrew and, and, and English, English will leave you here. It's, it, most translations will say, but Jonah. But it doesn't actually say that. It, th it says, and then Jonah. In Hebrew, it's, it's, it's actually a, uh, a very natural sequence of storytelling. It's called a consecutive uh, in, uh, imperfect. So, and then Jonah got up. So God says, remember, God is speaking to a prophet. Get up, go. So, so Jonah gets up to flee. <laughs> it's a setup. It's meant for us to go, what? He did what? Oh, he gets up to flee. Where is he going? He's going to Tarshish. And then there is a phrase there that repeats over and over. From the presence of the Lord. From the presence, literally it says in Hebrew, from the face of the Lord. And then he went down to uh, Joppa. So God is here. And Jonah is going to go down. Because how do you go away from the presence of God if God is up? You go down. So Jonah goes down, and we're going to see a pattern of going down. He's going to keep going down. Um, if you continue, continue to read, Jonah goes down. Pays the fee. And goes down into the ship. sure wish we knew where Tarshish was. <laughs> Verse 4. 
You know how English has several ways to say however, but, nevertheless, contrarily? But they're all kind of equally strong, aren't they? Um, young people love this joke. English, English has one way of saying but, but Hebrew has small butts and big butts. <laughs> Hebrew can say but, or but. There's several ways to say however. They're called, you know, a con- and is conjunction. Uh, but is disjunction, and Hebrew has four levels of disjunctives. You can just add one on top of the other, is what Hebrew can do. Here, we have a word order disjunction. Uh, Hebrew likes to start with a verb. Verb, subject, object. English has a subject, verb, object. I love you. I, subject, verb, love, you, object. Hebrew likes to say love, I, you. Kind of Yoda sounding, right? Love, I, you. but when it doesn't begin with a verb, it's saying, oh, I'm gonna bring something to the front that's really important. It brings in verse four, the Lord, at the very beginning. And there's a vav in front of it. A vav is a disjunctive clause there. So it's got a doubly uh, disjunctive sense there. So Jonah is trying to move away from the face of the Lord, but two two, uh, disjunctives there but Yahweh, but the Lord. What does this Lord do? Uh, The Lord hurls. There's a Hebrew word that's rare. It's called duel. It's not throw or cast. It's a strange word. Uh, So hurl might be a good word because hurl is not a common word for us. We throw things, cast things. But, But the Lord hurls a great wind. We're going to see this over and over and over. So the Lord hurls a great wind on the sea. And there was a great storm. Doesn't that seem redundant? And that's, and, and actually, in, in good English translations, smooth English, they won't say it like that. The Lord hurled a great storm, so, so, I mean, great wind, so there was a great storm on the sea. That sounds strange. So we smooth it out. But then you start to miss that already we've heard this word three times. Go to the great city of Nineveh. The Lord hurls a great wind, and there's a great storm. Keep this in mind. Kum, lech, get up, go, and proclaim, kara, cry out against it. Then we get personification at the end of that. Uh, The ship literally threatened to break itself apart. The wind and the storm was so great, the ship said to itself, I'm just gonna fall apart if you don't mind. Uh, The word threatened isn't actually, isn't there. Uh, the, The word there is plan, devise, scheme. That's the word in Hebrew. The ship is thinking and planning carefully, I'm gonna break myself up because I can't take this anymore. That's the personification there. Again, you you would miss this uh, in most English translations. Then the sailors feared, and they cried out each to his God, and they hurl, duel, their cargo, their stuff, it says, 
all the stuff, which was on the ship to the sea. In an effort to try, the, try to survive. There's a, uh, an interesting contrast between Jonah and the pagans in this book. There are two sets of pagans. The first set of pagans, the sailors. These are not Israelites. Israelites were not seafaring people. And so these pagans are each crying to their own gods. And, and yet Jonah had gone down and had fallen asleep. Remember, gone down? We get that again. Because God's up here. He's going to keep going down, by the way. The sailor, who has no clue. By the way, uh, all the pagans come out looking better than Jonah. Let me tell you, that's spoiler alert, right? Uh, so the pa- this, this head sailor comes to Jonah and says to him, Kum. We've heard that before. Kum, get up. Rise. Kara. Cry out. The very commands of God to Jonah are now found in the lip, on the lips of the pagan sailor who comes to Jonah and says, get up and kara. And it's interesting how the narrator is borrowing so many words from, from uh, the first part and it will just weave throughout the book. How could you possibly be asleep? Get up. Cry, to, cry out to your God. Maybe, Ulai, maybe, perhaps, this God of yours might listen and not let us perish. Perish, um, dis- be destroyed, Vod. And they said each to his friend, um, each to his companion, let us cast lots to see whose fault this is. Think about this. They say, so that we might know, so that we might know on account of whom this, this calamity has fallen upon us. Does Jonah know? Does he say, no, no, don't bother, it's me? Interesting, isn't it? All right, let's, let's do it, let's see what happens. So the lot falls on Jonah and then this head sailor has got a whole bunch of questions for him. Uh, look at this text. Um, well, in Hebrew, it shows up as several questions. How does, it, how does your, tra- your translation set, uh, is render this? Um, what is your job? Is the first one. What is your occupation? Is that your first question? What do you do? Okay. Uh, and then what's the second question? Where do you come from? Yeah, what, what, literally it says, you come from where? What is your country? What, okay, what is your land? What your land? Okay, what's next? From what people are you? From what people are you? Um, now that they've discovered that Jonah is responsible for this, he, he's got a series of questions that seem kind of odd. 
to us. It should seem kind of odd. What is your job? Now, if you're dying on a ship and you, you discover, and the, they all share a common kind of theological framework. The pagans, of course, uh, believe that gods were responsible for natural disasters. That's why every go- all these different people groups on the ship were crying out to their own god, thinking, maybe it's my god that's angry. You cry out to your god, you cry out to your god, I'll cry out to my god. One god is angry, we're going to find out who. Turns out it's Yahweh. But what is your job? Why would you ask that? What do you think? Why, do you th- why does the storyteller tell us this, this strange detail? What is, how is that pertinent to the story? Sorry? What are you doing here? They're sailors. That too. What do we know about his job? Do we as the reader know what his job is? Yeah. This is his job. He's the one true prophet of Yahweh. And his one job, all the prophets really had one job. Kara. They proclaim God's word. The second question. Um, Where are you from? Why might that be important for the sailors? Where are you from? Um, There's a word called henotheism. Henotheism says, it's a, it's a form of polytheism, essentially. So one nation can be, can be polytheistic and believe in a bunch of, bunch of gods. Uh, henotheism says, okay, we have our God, you have your God, and I don't deny your God, and you shouldn't deny mine. It's almost a kind of a pluralistic uh, philosophy and theology, henotheism. So even a polytheistic culture like the Canaanites, uh, they had a whole pantheon, but they had one chief God, Baal, or Baal. So even the polytheistic cultures had kind of a henotheistic understanding of the world. And so if to ask somebody that you don't know, where are you from, is really asking, who's your God? What is your land? What people are you from? So all of this, and a whole breathless series of questions, the sailor is asking Jonah to explain himself. The pace, by the way, is breathless. What, 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 what? Uh, when you read this in Hebrew, it says ma, something, ma, something, ma, something, ma. Ma means what? And uh, it's a very uh, strange rhythm. Uh, poor grammar. So when I teach Hebrew, I, I ask students, don't, don't think that this is good grammar, because you learn good grammar. You're, you should notice that this is bad grammar. Why is the sailor speaking in bad grammar? Yeah, he's panicked. He's not, he doesn't have time to form good sentences. What job? What people? You. And then he says, and he said to them, and then we have a, uh, uh, another disjunctive clause here. Ivri anochi, Hebrew I am. Ooh, he's kind of proud of this. Hebrew I am, and Yahweh God of 
the heavens, Shamayim. Shamayim, by the way, is also a dual ending because there's um, the, the dark night and the light night. I mean, light sky and the dark sky, um, the night sky and the day sky, Shamayim. God of heaven, I fear, who made the sea and the Yabasha. Uh, there are several words in Hebrew for land or earth. Uh, land, earlier it says, what is your land? What is your country? That's Eretz. So that's land. There's a sense of land in, in dirt kind of land. That's Adama. That's where we get Adam from. Adam, Adam was made from Adama. That's why he's called Adam. We are called dirt. Uh, hum, human. Adam means human. Because in Genesis 1, Adam was made female and male. Male and female, God created Adam. And then there's this word, Yabasha. This isn't Eretz. This isn't Adama. This is dry land. So the land below the sea is not Yabasha. That could be Adama. It's not Eretz, because Eretz is part of your country land. This one is dry ground. This God is responsible for making the Yam, the sea, and the dry land. Why would this be significant to the story at this point? Sorry? Yeah, they're in the sea. Uh, by the way, this is not the, the Sea of Galilee. Joppa, Joppa, Joppa uh, is located on the, uh, the Mediterranean. And Tarshish, wherever it is, all the guesses are out in the ocean, in the Mediterranean Ocean. If it's Tarsus, it's, it's out that way. If it's a Greek island somewhere, it's, it's still out. So they're out in the Mediterranean Sea. And so they're in panic mode, right? They're thinking they're going to die. They're going to perish. They're going to be destroyed. And maybe your God will listen to us and not let us perish. And he says, my God made that thing, the sea, and the dry land. Yes? Just a quick parallel to the artist radius. Odysseus is able to come home only when Poseidon guarded the sea permission. But the whole point of this exodus. God of the sea. Yeah. By the way, there's a, a whole lot going on with the sea uh, in the Old Testament. Yom, sea, uh, has an idea of chaos. And uh, by the way, there is the Canaanite god whose name is Yom, sea. And um, Canaanites were not all that imaginative. They just called their gods by the name that they called their things. So, for example, uh, also Canaanite language is, is a cognate of Hebrew, and so Hebrew and Canaanite sound almost exactly alike. In fact, Moabite reads exactly like Hebrew to me. Uh, one time, my, one of my professors in grad school gave us an inscription to translate. Uh, this was on a doctoral study, so it's translate this. I'm like, okay, we're all sitting there translating. And this is not in the Bible, I don't think we know this. And he goes, well, that's the Mesha inscription, the Moabite stone. It's like, what? We can, we can read the Moabite, like you can read Moabite because you can read Hebrew. Cognates, uh, and that's why Ruth, Moabite, can talk to Naomi without any problems, right? They're not, they're not, they're not so strange. It would be almost like talking to a British person for us. Yeah, some words differ. Like if they ask you to hand, hand them a torch, 
Like, we're like, what? You want a torch? Torchlight? We think of a torchlight, but I mean flashlight. Um, the sea, Yam, Chodesh, the, the moon, Shemesh, the sun. So those are Canaanite gods' names. Chodesh, the moon god, Shemesh, the sun god. And that's why in Genesis 1, by the way, you don't have Chodesh and Shemesh. You got the greater light and the lesser light. The author is basically saying, what gods? There are no other gods. It's a polemic against Canaanite mythology. There's only one God, Elohim, and God created everything. And this is the God. This Elohim happens to be Yahweh. Yahweh is the name, by the way. The Lord, when you see the Lord in all caps in English translations, that's the tetragrammaton, four letters, Y-H-W-H. It's pronounced Yahweh, but the Old Testament Jewish people, in order to never say God's name in vain, they just didn't say it. So whenever they came across this word, Yahweh, they said Adonai, which is Lord. So the English, English tradition of saying, you shall love the Lord your God, uh, that's a tradition that we adopted from the Jewish people. Uh, but it doesn't even make a lot of sense, the Lord your God. I mean, we heard it all our lives, so it, doesn't, it sounds okay, but really it's almost like saying to, if, if, if an advisor said to a student, you should respect TC, your professor. One's a name, one's a title. So you shall love Yahweh, your God. Not Baal. Baal is not your God. Yahweh is your God. So you shall love Yahweh, your God. And so that tetragrammaton is, uh, is a name. So here, the sailors tell them, okay, go, go, worship, go pray to your gods, Elohims, all your Elohims. Each, each person cried out to Elohim. But Yahweh, he says, Adonai, Lord, I fear. And this Yahweh is responsible for everything that you see, including the dry land, which they desperately want to get to, like you said. And then here is the next uh, Gadolah, Gadol. Verse 10. The men feared a great fear, is how Hebrew reads it. The men feared a great fear. Uh, I forget how your translation rendered that, Linda. Do you, do you, how did they do that? Yeah, this terrify them. So again, this word great occurs. The great city, the great wind, the great storm. Now, a great fear. So the men feared a great fear. And they said to, said to him, Ma, Zot, Asita. My son knows this phrase. Because it means, what this you have done? Ma, what? Zot, this, asita, you have done. What is this you have done? We encounter this, by the way, uh, all throughout Scripture. And 100% of the time, it is rhetorical. It is not indicative question, interrogative. It's rhetorical. And the first time we encounter this word, this phrase, is in the words of Pharaoh, an Egyptian king who speaks to Abraham who to told Sarah to lie about her status as his wife, tell everyone you're my sister, which is half true because she's his half-sister. And then when Pharaoh finds out that that's what's happened, he says to Abraham, Ma, Zot, Asita. <laughs> it's rhetorical. They already know what's going on, just like the sailors do right now. And the rhetoric behind it is something like this. How could you possibly have done this? Even in English, by the way, when we say things like that, we, that's rhetorical. When we say, how could you possibly have done this? We're not asking for information, are we? <laughs> We're blaming. And at this point, a sailor is going, 
how could you possibly have done this? And ma, zoasita, always carries a moral uh, connotation. It means you should know better. Yes? Uh, it's slightly different there, but it's a similar idea, yeah. Uh, there, it could almost be interrogative without the rhetorical. I think it is still rhetorical, because God knows. Uh, but it's a slightly different phrase. This one has a strong moral accusation, saying, you should never have done this. I already know, and you know I know. So when I say to my son, Ma, zo asita, <laughs> he starts backing up. <laughs> <coughs> he knows a few Hebrew phrases, and this is one of them. Dan, what time do we end? 10.50. Okay. Um, all right, man, i got to finish the rest of this portion. Uh, so they fear great fear, and they say to him, Ma Ki, they knew, they had known that this is what's been happening. The men had already known that this guy, Yonah, was fleeing from the presence of this God named Yahweh. They just didn't know who Yahweh was. Right? Because they're, they're pagans. They had never heard of Yahweh. They're, oh, they might have been familiar with Israel as a nation. So he says, they, so this narrator is interjecting here. They had already known. That's why he, he can say, Ma Zorasita. And then, uh, and then the, the, the personification comes back. Uh, for, the, for the sea has Holech Soer, means the sea is walking and raging. So the sea is walking, holech, halach is to walk, is walking and raging. This word has the same content as if you and I were raging about something. The this, this, this sea is walking and raging. And then uh, uh, he says to them, lift me up. And then here's that word again, hurl, duel. Lift me up and hurl me to the sea, and he will become calm for you. For I know I am responsible for all of this. Uh, and then it says, this great storm again. I know that this great storm is upon you because of me. Gadol, 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 gadol. What is going on? By the way, if you're thinking, well, that's just how Hebrew works, right? No, Hebrew doesn't, this is strange. Hebrew doesn't repeat things like, men feared a great fear. That's strange. Just, it sounds just as strange as it is in English. Men were terrified would be better. They have words like that. Or to say the storm uh, was great, there are lots of different ways to say that, but over and over we keep saying gadol, this great city. This great wind, the great storm, the great fear, and again, the great... And where do we end up in chapter 1? The great fish. We won't find out until chapter 4 why this emphasis on gadol, 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 until we get to kikiyon, kikiyon. <laughs> kikiyon is a little tiny plant. But then gadol, 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 gadol is going to make so much more sense when we get to the end of chapter 4 and the message is about what gadol means and what kikiyon means and what, what, what God's heart is and what, where Jonah is. So the men actually do. Uh, what, did the men immediately throw Jonah off the board? What did they do? 
they, the word there, uh, row, is dig. So you, we can picture them rowing, digging into the water harder. So they figure out, they find out, oh, okay, it's your fault. So rather than saying immediately, okay, we're done, throw you off and we're fine, let's do that. They don't. They value even this guy's life to try not to do this. Because in the middle of the ocean, you throw somebody overboard, that person dies. They're trying to save this guy. When they finally just can't do it, that's when they lift Jonah up and throw him overboard. Now consider this. When Jonah had gone down to the belly of the, sh- the ship, he, keep, he goes down to Jaffa to go down to go to Tarshish. He goes down into the underbelly of the ship and falls asleep. And the storm comes, and the head sailor, the Rav, the, the, the big, the head guy, Hancho, shows up and he says, why are you sleeping? How could you be sleeping? Cry out to your God. And Jonah already knows what's going on. He, remember we, we talked about the lots, the casting of lots. Did he, he's kind of, he's letting things unfold. He was willing to go down with a ship. This guy would rather die than go to Nineveh. We know this, because he says, throw me overboard. Who knows? By the way, uh, the storyteller, by the way, lots of stories uh, will have ways of like, navigating your imagination and will leave things out. For example, uh, in Genesis, the question I get all the time is, who did Cain and Abel marry? <laughs> Students want to know. It's like, I don't know. The storyteller doesn't care. The story's going in a different direction. Who is Cain afraid of? There are people out there he's afraid of. Who are they? I thought those are the only two people on earth. No, the storyteller doesn't care about those things. They're giving you details. That, so like the why questions behind, we don't know. We know what's, what's in the text, and the text has Jonah not caring, and the sailors caring. In fact, the next few words here uh, that the sailors speak, when they finally decide to throw this guy overboard, in verse 14, they cry to, to Yahweh, and they say, please, Lord, do not let us perish on behalf of this man's life. And do not put upon us blood that is innocent. For you, O Adonai, O Yahweh, have done what you have wanted to do. Since you're doing this, please don't hold us accountable for this man's life. So even as they're doing this, they value life. By the way, those, that phrase, the dam naki, innocent blood, comes from Genesis in the, in the, in the Noahic covenant when God says to Noah, do not shed innocent blood. That's my only, really, really only requirement for the Noahic covenant, don't, don't shed innocent blood. And this story is basically kind of a, uh, not, not a reference, but an allusion to that going, everyone is under the Noahic covenant, not just Israelites. And these people, from their own hearts, know that this is not something that they want to do. Yes, sir. Well, 
Right, but you probably don't, you and I don't share a polytheistic, henotheistic worldview, right? We don't already begin with, yeah, you have your God, my, I have my God. My, my God brings the storms, the rains. What does your God do? We don't have that framework already, but they already did. They already had kind of a broad polytheistic, henotheistic understanding of, of the world. So um, these, these people are afraid because this God is responsible for the sea and the dry land and is the God of the heavens. In fact, right there after that, it says... In verse 16, this is where we'll, we'll have to end up here. Verse 16, again, the men feared a great fear of Adonai, Yahweh. They fear Yahweh with a great fear. Again, that's awkward. Why keep repeating this word gadol? I'm going to have to hold that thought with, uh, until day four here because we won't. We do have five minutes. Oh, it is wrong? Oh, good. Um, Thank you. We do have five minutes. So this, this is the men feared a great fear, and then, and then look, what, look what they did in verse 16. And here, here again, you won't see this. Uh, it says, they sacrificed sacrifices to Yahweh, and they made vows of vows. Uh, we call that cognate accusative, where the, uh, the verb and the object is the same word. It's almost, we, we sometimes use it, uh, we can write words, but we can also write writings, right? When you write writings, that's kind of cognate accusative. But in Hebrew, when it does that, the cognate accusative, the, the verb and the object being the same, it's an emphatic state. It's an emphatic statement. And so think about this. Uh, what we were just talking about, they heard... That this Yahweh is responsible for the heavens, the dry land, and the sea, and that this Yahweh was responsible for this great storm. They cast this guy overboard, and the sea calms. Their response is just like the disciples. When a storm just calms, their response is, What just happened? Because any, anyone who's been in the sea knows that's not what happens, right? Seas and storms don't just simply disappear. And so when Jesus says, and he rebukes the wind and rebukes the storm and says, calm yourselves, and you just calm down, and the waters calm down, the disciples immediately say, and, and the word there is that they're shocked, they're surprised out of their mind, they're amazed, and, and they say, who is this man? What kind of man is this? Because a man cannot do this. A man cannot quiet the storms. So just like the, the disciples, when they experienced this, and this was just a small storm, because they're in the Sea of Galilee. It's a lake. It's a big lake. But it's not, a, it's not the Mediterranean Ocean. So when the sea just calms itself, the men go, oh, who is this? So what do they do? Their response is one of great fear, yes, Yare, fear, great fear. But they make sacrifices to Yahweh and they make vows to Yahweh. Sacrifices are a form of worship. Now vows, what does this mean? Vows, what vows? Well, we make vows. In our culture, we don't make so many vows at, anymore, but one vow that I made once was at a wedding. It's a form of commitment. Here we have a conversion story. This is a conversion. They're not just saying, oh, okay, now we can go home. We're safe. 
No, they actually witnessed the power of Yahweh, and they said, okay, we submit to this God, they offer sacrifices, and they make vows. In other words, I am now a Yahwist. So in this story, by the way, the sailors did everything right. Jonah was going to let them die. He doesn't tell them that he's responsible when they're casting lots. And he casually just says, pick me up and hurl me over, it'll be, qu- it'll be quiet for you. Now, some people, by the way, will take that to say, well, he's finally repenting, he realizes it's his fault, and he's going to sacrifice himself for the, better, better, uh, for the protection of the sailors. When you read the rest of the story, you know that's not true, right? Jonah is not happy. Right, right. <coughs> We're going to talk a lot about what, what Jonah wanted in chapter, th- uh, chapter 4. Because he actually tells God what he wanted uh, or why he's doing it. So we don't know so far. It, the storyteller withholds information like a good storyteller. We don't know what's motivating Jonah yet. We, we don't find out until chapter 3. Now we get hints in chapter 3. Uh, that he's, do, he's not quite what he seems. He's not a prophet. He is a prophet, but he's not functioning like one. There are two words that prophets use, verbs, imperative, uh, commands, that, that prophets use most often than any other verb. It's shuv, return, nacham, repent. Jonah says neither. In fact, Jonah's words are five words in Hebrew. The shortest oracle ever recorded from a prophet Yet, 40 days, Nineveh will be overturned. I know, will be overturned is a lot in English. It's one word in Hebrew. Yet, 40 days, Nineveh, Hafach. Well, he knows, he, uh, the question is, how would Jonah have known uh, that if, if he's cast overboard, the, the sea would calm? We don't know. We don't know how Jonah knew, right? It could have been just... It is part of the story. Like he, somehow he knew, but he, we don't know how he knew. But we know that he knows he's responsible. Because Yahweh says, go to Nineveh, and he's going the other way. Uh, I was going to draw this really quick. Uh, mountains, the rivers. Okay. <laughs> this is Turkey, the Hittites. All right, Galilee, Dead Sea. Follow me. <laughs> this is a map of the ancient Near East. Uh, sorry, the, the two great rivers. The mountains up here, uh, Persian Gulf. This is Babylon down here. Nineveh is up here. And this area is called the Fertile Crescent because this is the Arabah, the, the, the desert, Saudi Arabia. Uh, Arabah means dry desert. This is where they are. Tar- Joppa is down here, and Tarshi is somewhere over here. Nineveh is here. He's going the wrong way, right? Uh, but we should note uh, what you were talking about. This, during this time, this empire, the, Mediter- the, the, the Mesopotamian Empire, was Assyrian. So the Nineveh would have been the capital city of this empire. And since they are the great power, the superpower, they are the oppressors of the smaller Syrian and, and uh, Canaanite nations, including Israel. And so, yeah, 
they're enemies in, this, in, es- in essence. But uh, so he says, I don't want to go over there. We're out of time. Um, chapter two is fascinating. It's a poem. It's a psalm, and it's said to be it's said to be written by Jonah. Uh, most scholars will tell you that chapter 2 was a later addition to this, this manuscript. Um, but someone, obviously, enough people thought that it fit in the story. So we're going to read it as part of the story next, cl- next, next week. Thank you for coming, and I'll s- hopefully see you next week.